morning. I'm going to have you all open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, and uh, as a First Peter chapter four, and as a gift to you moms, we're going to be talking about end times. <laughs> kidding. It sounds so weird. Huh? Um, anyways, um, no, hopefully it'll be a uh, real encouragement to you guys. If you need a Bible, why don't you raise your hand, and we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to just read a little bit of a segment of passage of Scripture from the book of First Peter. Again, Peter, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know he's writing this to a community of followers of Jesus that are really trying hard to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of a world that's um, not compliant, not happy with them, and in many ways hostile and pushing back, and yet they they are seeking to cling to Jesus, and Peter's attempt is to say, don't, don't give up, don't give in, keep going, don't capitulate, don't compromise, don't live in despair. Jesus is on the throne, he's good, he's loving you, he's with you, he's going to help you, he's for you. And that's what we're going to just now jump into and remind ourselves of, and then uh, hopefully this will be an encouragement to you, all of y'all. So First Peter chapter 4, uh, really the main verse that we're only going to be looking at here today is just one, verse 7 that's specifically it. But I want to read just for context, um, the rest of that little section will go all the way down to verse 11. So uh, go ahead and listen as uh, I read or follow along up on the screen. Verse 7 says this, the end of all things is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully show your, share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each one of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God were, giving, were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do, will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we will get to work. God, thank you for your presence that's in this place. God, just I just want to pause and say thank you for that amazing time of just lifting up our voices and singing. Um, thank you for just the, the nearness, God, that you had brought, I, I think, just to all here in this room of your presence. God, thank you for your love for us. And we ask you right now that you just open our hearts to all that you have for us here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So I want to really, like I said, focus just on verse 7. That's really kind of the main thing. And then that will kind of set the stage for a couple weeks to come. So just FYI, next week I'm going to actually teach specifically a message on baptism. So again, just as was alluded to in the announcements, if you've never been baptized and maybe if you've kind of been wrestling with what is baptism even all about, is it just a ceremony, do I really need to get baptized, you do not want to miss next week. Sunday. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you would claim to be followers of Jesus but have never been baptized, but you guys know who you are, and you guys and gals know who you are. We're equal possibility people here, so whoever you are, um, my prayer would be that you would actually come with an open heart that just says, I really want all that God has for me. And if part of that all involves baptism, my hope would at least provide some form of informational and formative information for you, that's what I'm trying to say, that will help convince you into stepping into that particular act and really obedience and following of Jesus and all that God has for you. So don't miss next Sunday. And then the following Sunday after that, as was already alluded to, um, is the actual baptism. So we will 
start this week looking at this little segment, and then we'll take two weeks for the various things I just mentioned, and then we'll jump back into the remainder of this whole little section. So right now, I really just want to focus on verse 7, and when I said I'm going to be talking a little bit about the end of the world, um, I wasn't kidding. Like, that's literally what we're going to talk about, but I want to talk a little bit about what I think Peter was trying to describe and what that means, because again, I, I realize, uh, I mean, if you want a big nerdy word to describe this, it's the word um, apocalyptic teaching or in times, or eschatology is another big word to describe it. Um, don't fall asleep yet. Hopefully this will get informa- uh, helpful for you, wherever you're at, whatever types of things that you're processing. Um, I realize the idea of eschatology might bring some baggage for many of you. Because maybe for some of you, um, you were brought up in a church where that's all the pastor ever talked about. That's all he ever talked about is when Jesus is going to come again, what that will look like, the end of the world, Antichrist, Satanism, 666, all sorts of stuff, honestly, that can sometimes happen and play out. And at some point, you are like, your soul's starving. You might not exactly know why, because you're really not getting the gospel. All you're getting is just some sort of speculation about the end times. However, sometimes what ends up taking place are pastors or religious leaders avoid this topic because they don't want to go down a path that maybe they've seen caricatured in other contexts. What I want to try to do as best as I can to at least provide, I think this is uh, information that will help you process this rightly. Because at the end of the day, this idea of the end of all things is a biblical topic that we have to look at. And I really want to do the best we can to just uh, apply our minds, our thinking process to this, as well as just trying to understand like what would Peter have in mind with regard to describing this whole idea of the end of all things is at hand. The word all things literally is just all things. The end that he uses the word there for the word end is the word telos, or the aim, the goal of all things is at hand. So big question I want to just jump into real quickly and just kind of ask the question, what, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, to answer that question, it's really important to just note that scholars, theologians, Bible teachers, literally for the past 2,000 years, have debated exactly what this means, right? So it's just important to know, like, really at the end of the day, nobody fully, completely, absolutely can have absolute certainty or certitude on exactly what it's talking about because there's can be some ambiguity. But it doesn't mean that we can't know anything about this. So what I want to throw out to you are the four main big ideas that Scholars, theologians, pastors, Bible teachers, Bible scholars throughout the past 2,000 years have basically viewed this as. So I'm going to give you all four of them up front, and we'll just kind of go through them real quickly, and then we'll kind of jump into some um, final like observations, and then hopefully that will be the conclusion of this whole thing that will make some sense to you and hopefully bring some encouragement to you as well. So I'm going to basically describe it this way. Number one, it could be a reference to the end of the actual world, which I'll I'll just simply describe as terrestrial. In other words, planet Earth, as we know, this is oftentimes when people talk about, the Bible talks about the end of the world. That's exactly what it's talking about. The end of planet Earth, as we know, will be destroyed. And there's some elements in New Testament would hint at that potential. I mean, again, I don't have to try to convince you on the fact that climate change or the challenges that are happening in our world today like at some point planet earth is just kind of kind of give up and like burn out and that's that's that at some point we don't know when that's going to be um people have been saying this for many many hundreds of years but the point of the matter is we have resources on planet earth that at some point will run out it's a simple fact but the point that i would make is the with that that some would suggest that this is what he's referring to now that's that can be challenging because again just fyi this was written how long ago 2,000 years ago, and it has not happened yet. So some would be like, well, see, in fact, I wouldn't even go so far as to say, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, but around the 1800s, 
So uh, 19th century. There are these critics that had begun to arise throughout, and this was kind of a time where um, the, the scientific um, means of observing the world was kind of spreading uh, all throughout the world. Uh, within Europe, there were these scholars and, that would come along and say, well, maybe, maybe the Bible, maybe we misunderstood it. Maybe it was incorrect. And they began to kind of give certain uh, observations and interpretations of the Bible, uh, higher critics and whatnot. And this kind of started within Germany and France and bled over to Britain and then to America and whatnot. And this, was, this came to be known as theological liberalism. Again, I'm not going to go into this rabbit trail. But the point that I would make is it, was, it basically called to question any form of spiritualizing or, in this particular case, uh, way of thinking about the end of the world. So they would basically look at this, and again, I'm kind of caricaturing in some way, that the Bible was just wrong. It just has ideas or facts that are just simply incorrect. That's, that's one way to think about it, um, that the end of the world is at hand in a terrestrial sense. The second way that's kind of popular is the end of all things Jewish. And this would be looking forward to, or look, for us looking back, to AD 70. We know historically what happened was in AD 70, uh, the Roman army came against the city of Jerusalem and basically ransacked it, destroyed it. This temple that had been set up, and it was the center, not only for all things religious, but all things political, for all Jews worldwide. It was literally the most, it was like Rome. Imagine Rome and Vatican City basically being destroyed, all in a matter of weeks. The, imagine the impact that that would have on, let's say, uh, global Catholicism. Or Mecca being destroyed, and what, what type of impact that would have upon Islam. That's exactly what happened with Jerusalem in AD 70. So some have suggested the end of all things is a reference to the end of uh, all things Jewish. The temple reduced the rubble, Jerusalem sacked, Israel scattered throughout the ancient known world as what was commonly known as the diaspora. So the third thing is to view this as potentially as a demise of those that are reading the epistle. So again, some, I would kind of describe this as more like locally based. In other words, those to whom are the initial audience of this. That maybe some have suggested that Peter's writing these people saying, hey, guys, by the way, the end of all things are coming near. Uh, there might be some sort of tragedy or trauma that will befall you as a culture and as a community. And just know you're all, you're all going to die pretty soon under some form of tragedy and horrible end. Um, that's, again, a possibility that has been suggested. A fourth way of kind of viewing this, and this is kind of, I'm going to lean a little bit into this, is a viewpoint that I'll just simply describe as cosmic, meaning all things, all things. And this is kind of a popular view that, uh, amongst many well-known scholars. It kind of goes something like this. The end of this world system, so imagine planet Earth is got two things. I'm, 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 you know, all inhabits of planet Earth. We have hardware and we have software. Hardware is obviously the physical nature of things and actual like um, nations and human beings and people that are in places of power and authority and responsibility. But then think about the operating system, which is kind of invisible. You can't really pinpoint it, but it's there. It's the ethos. It's the way that we think. Um, it's kind of like a, like a Macintosh computer, right? Where you got the actual hardware. It might have 16 gigs of RAM and it might have a, you know, terabyte of, of, of information that you can download information on. But then there's the operating system, the operating system, which is invisible. It doesn't weigh anything, by the way. You can't measure it, but it is there and it operates things. It's very distinct from Windows or Droid, Android or whatever. But the point that I would make is this is that someone had suggested that this is exactly what is suggested here, is that the end of a system, meaning the system that's been at play in the world for thousands of years, the end of this system 
uh, which we can define this as, which, I, which I've written down here, is like power plays, human arrogance, lies, deception, sexual distortions, sin, rebellion, cycles of violence, and then ultimately death. That Jesus might be suggesting here, that, or, or Peter suggesting, looking back to what Jesus had said as well, that the end of all of these things are come near and at hand. And then he's going to go on in the remainder of the passage, which you just read. And again, we will look at uh, the weeks to come. He goes on to say, therefore, because of this, therefore live in a certain way. And like I said, in a couple of weeks, I'll get to the certain way that he invites us or instructs us to be able to live. But with that being said, I want to just pause and think about a couple of things. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus actually ushered in a whole new world that actually is replacing or has replaced the old world or the old world system. That's what the message of Easter is all about. That when Jesus rose again from the dead, it wasn't just a one-up event, though it was a one-up event. It wasn't just an event that took place somewhere back in a distant you know, time frame continuum. And, and that's that. The whole idea, the whole concept, the whole construct of the New Testament is to basically say that singular event set in motion a whole new way of being human that's ultimately going to append and replace the operating system as well as the physical hardware someday of the entire cosmos. Every bit of square inch of this entire created world and cosmos will be replaced and upgraded by way of god's new earth that's been brought forth that in other words this process of cosmic renewal when i just say cosmic i just i mean everything that is created to this created order that's just the word cosmos means order orderliness god created all things as good at some point it got distorted it went downstream it went off track it derailed it got uh, corrupted by way of sin and rebellion and destruction and what god is doing and what he had begun there on that day of Christ, or Easter, Easter morning as Christmas as well, coming into the world, all of these events that we often have celebrate as followers of Jesus, all of these were parts of God moving to undo the curse and to replace it with newness of life. What life? His life. The life of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's life. And that's the message of the New Testament. In other words, that renewed human beings... Ultimately, the way that people that are living for Jesus, the way that you live, ultimately is a sign as well as a foretaste of this impending kingdom. That's the big idea. So you can put it into a question, why is it so important for a Christian to really live in a way that is in alignment and consistency with this new life and new creation that God has brought forth? It's because when we don't live in consistency with that, we end up sending confusing messages. Because on the one hand, theologically or theoretically, you say, Jesus rose again from the dead. But then we go out and we live just like the rest of the operating system in the world. And then people are just like confused. I don't get it. I don't get it. You guys claim Jesus is awesome, and yet you're racist. You act like Jesus is great, and yet you hate people. You act like Jesus is great, yet you're getting drunk constantly. What? I, it doesn't make sense. I don't get it. It's a confusing message. And that's the big idea that basically Peter's saying the end of all things. So here's another way to think about it. That what, whichever interpretation you kind of lean towards, I think the same net effect is always kind of pointing back to the same idea, which is he's going to describe that 
because the end of all things is at hand, live in such a way that we'll kind of move into the therefore. And he's going to go in. He's going to talk a little bit about therefore pray, therefore love, therefore serve one another with the gifts and the giftings that God's given you. In other words, live with radical generosity. Live in a lifestyle and in a manner that's filled with love. Live in a way in which you are devoted to God and his ways and his kingdom. Uh, again, like I said, we will get into that in the weeks to come. But here's another way of thinking about this. Because Jesus is renewing the cosmos, live now as if you would when that day fully dawns. Live now as if you would live when that day fully dawns. So with that, I want to just say this. Your life has meaning and a mission. That's kind of a big E on the eye chart. You are not a meaningless, worthless human being trying to make sense of your life by incessantly scrolling through social media. That's not where you're going to find your identity. Or at least that's not where you're going to find a lasting identity that will ultimately create beauty and goodness and truth. It will give you an identity. I promise you it will give you an identity, but it will give you an identity that's time-stamped. And at some point, it will expire, and when it expires, it becomes rancid. And then you'll have to shop again for another identity. What the gospel promises, what the good news of what happened on that Easter Sunday declares to us is that a brand new kingdom, a brand new world, a brand new day has begun. Now, this is where it gets really important to note. The way the New Testament writers had written about this was not that Jesus would come and all of a sudden this new day would dawn and everything would be this radical contrast between, you know, it's, it, the past is gone and the new is already here. And the, like everything feels like this utopia. That's not the way that Jesus promised it. He said the way the kingdom is going to come is going to be like leaven. Just a little bit. Just a little bit's going to get deposited. And that little bit's going to begin to grow and expand. It's going to be like a tree that's going to just begin to sprout out here. So another, another way, many of us get confused because we're just like, I don't get it. Jesus claims that this kingdom came. But part of the problem is, is our perception. We're expecting a forest to be dropped complete with fruit and beauty and all of the above. But God says, I'm going to give you a bunch of seeds. It's going to be your responsibility to plant those seeds and to nurture those seeds and to cultivate those seeds and to spread those seeds and to create gardens and gardens and gardens. And as those seeds begin to grow, which by the way, growing things takes a long time. In other words, it's not this cataclysmic event that will one day just immediately happen. But that being said, this is the beginning of how Jesus begun things. Uh, we are not necessarily looking forward, and I want to be really clear here. I do not believe that Christians tasked with this responsibility to continue to plant and cultivate and bear fruit and all this type of stuff, that we will then be, be the ones solely responsible for somehow uh, Christianizing planet Earth. In the cosmos. Uh, I want to be really clear about this. In other words, just because we are on this trajectory, you know, add eons and eons and thousands and thousands of years, because the bottom line, we as human beings, if you have not, you know, uh, discovered the weakest link in this entire thing, is human beings. We don't get it right very often. You agree with that? You agree with that? We don't get it right very often. Again, we've had 2,000 years of experience doing this, and we still have not really gotten it right. So if you've ever kind of looked back and scratch your head and be like, why are Christians so cantankerous and angry and frustrated and just like crippling and shutting down Twitter and social media? Because at the end of the day, we don't really get it all the time. So the hope is that one day Jesus will come back 
or appear in, in a way that is cataclysmic, meaning it will just happen like that. The Bible seems to imply that, describe that. Now, again, this is where it gets uh, you know, point out another one of those like little moments of like, is there absolute 100% clarity on all of this and how it's going to play out? No. It's one of the reasons why Christians still can't agree completely as to how it's going to play out. It's one of the reasons why maybe some of you have been to churches where the pastor is just, you know, throwing up charts up on the screen. They talk about, we know exactly it's going to go like this. The rapture is going to happen here and then be a seven year, tri- you know, tribulation. And then after that, all, and then, all, then you have others that are like, no, that's totally wrong and not, that's incorrect. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of nuances as to how and exactly what that timeline will look like, which I'm going to steer away from in this moment right now. I'm just going to simply say this. What we can be assured of is that Jesus one day will return. Jesus one day will make good on his promises. Jesus one day will bring healing universally to planet Earth, and he will transform the entire cosmos. That, in other words, think of it this way. Another final thought, and then I'll kind of move on to some final thoughts, and I'll be done. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. Think of it like a morning. Have you ever, like, been out early morning, and it's, like, pitch black? And all of a sudden, you know, half an hour goes by. Uh, it's, it's still pitch black, but there's, like, this often a distance on a horizon line. You see just a subtle glow. Right? It's, it's like the beginning of the day, and maybe another half an hour goes by. It's like way more brighter, but there's no sun yet. It's really bright. You can see everything. You can stick your hand in front of you, and it's like, oh, there's my hand, and this little cat running across the field, and all these things you're able to perceive and see, but the sun has not arisen yet. And then all of a sudden, that sun rises. You've been in that moment? Right now, let's say, for example, sunrise is at 7 o'clock. I don't know what time it is right now, but let's say, for example, the sunrise is at 7 o'clock. Do you know that about 45 minutes before the sun actually rises, that there there is perceptible light? I know this as a surfer because usually if you go to the surf report, it'll say, like, last light. And that's important to surfers because we don't really care about the sun sundown. We just care about last light. So sundown might be at 7 o'clock at night. What we really care about is 730. Because that's when it's too dark to even see anything in front of you. So that being said, it's the same idea that's basically being played out in the New Testament. That what happened on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus rose again from the dead, was the light. The day shifted from darkness to light. But that's different than noonday, right? When the sun's at high noon and it's really warm. Everything is absolutely visible and seen and known. That's the image that the Bible paints for us. That, let's say, for example, again, sunrise is at 7 o'clock. The sun rose. We might be around 7.30 right now. It's not full noon yet. When full noon comes, you will know it. We're not there yet. But what we are doing right now, because the day has dawned, because the new light has come, the new day has replaced the darkness and the death and the deceitfulness of night. What Peter's invitation is, live in such a way as if that's the reality. Let me give you a couple of passages, the way this kind of plays out in New Testament, and then I'll wrap this up. Mark chapter 13, verses 33 to 37. I'll just read this to you, and you can listen. Jesus actually says this. He says, watch out, stay alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going in on a long journey, and he left his house, and he put his servants in charge, assigning them each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. He says, stay alert then, because you do not know when the owner of the house will return, whether during evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn. These are all like moments within the, the 24-hour period, right? Then he goes on to say, verse 36, or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. 
What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. So what we do know about Jesus is his whole point is like, I'm going to tell you exactly when this moment's going to happen. But what I will tell you, stay alert. Live in such a way as if this new day has already grabbed a hold of your life and it reshaped you. It changed everything about you. Changed the way that you think. Changed the way that you view your identity. Changed the way that you view your sexuality. Changed the way you view about just all of these things. He says, live in such a way as you would live when that day fully dawns. That's the invitation. Listen to how Romans chapter 13 plays this out as well. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Again, Paul was kind of a latecomer to the entire you know, Jesus community party, and he then writes about very similar concepts. Listen to how he words this in his writing. Uh, he says, The hour has come for you to wake from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So again, notice the metaphorical language of darkness and light. He says, let us behave as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness or sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Why? Why are these things that Paul says, don't, don't, don't live as if these are the defining traits of your life. And he's going to say, rather instead, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Why does Paul describe these things? Again, just kind of break these down real quickly. He describes the word, let us behave, let's live. The big idea is to live, that our lifestyles would be very consistent with the light of the kingdom that's to come. In other words, his whole point is behave as if you are living in the daytime right now. Again, it might be only 7.30. It's not high noon yet, but live as if it is high noon. Because that same day, whether it's 7.30 in the morning or even 6.45 or 12 noon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's all part of the new day. So live as if that new day has already dawned and overtaken you. And he goes on to say, let us behave in the daytime, not carousing. I had to look at the word carousing because I didn't really know exactly what that is. But the word carousing basically implies this image. So the picture in ancient Roman times are a bunch of people hanging around around a bar, getting a little bit drunk or having a little bit too much to drink. And then they get a little bit combative. You know, testy with their mouth, they're kind of starting, you know, bar brawls or whatever, saying things that they normally would not have said when they're sober. He's saying, don't live like that. That's not consistent with the, the, the new nature, the new life that God has called us into. Then he goes on to say, not in drunkenness. And again, can a Christian have a drink? Absolutely. You're free to do that. Totally fine. This is not the issue here. The issue is like living as a lifestyle whereby these are the things. Again, to even go a little bit deeper, why do we oftentimes embrace those things? Why does a human, and I say we, I mean we as human beings, why do we avail ourselves of these things? Oftentimes these are forms of self-medication. Oftentimes they're really nothing more than a mask to the deeper pain that we're feeling inside. They're, they're just simply alternative things that we turn to because my life is filled with a, a deep ache or an acute sense or an awareness of a meaninglessness that I feel inside of me or I feel as if my life is worthless or I feel as if nobody really cares about me and therefore or I don't even have control over circumstances in my life. So my one way to be able to exercise and demonstrate control is somehow give myself a sense of affirmation that I'm alive, that I have power, that I'm not powerless, that I'm not forgotten is I can have control over my drink. And what, what Paul, the New Testament writer, is saying, guys, you're not dealing with the underlying maladies that are there. The gospel actually deals with those. Your life has meaning. You have a place. You have purpose. You are cared for. 
that ache, that sense of abandonment or that sense of feeling like you don't belong or that sense of uh, feeling lonely, all of that has been radically appended, turned upside down, turned on its head because God has shown you he's actually with you. He loves you. He's near you. And to the degree that we believe that, that then begins to reshape our understanding of the landscape of our lives. To the degree that we don't believe that, we oftentimes then are left with the default operating system of the world, which is, ah, it's just full of despair and loneliness and pain and nobody cares about you, so just live it up. Have another drink. Let's toast because we have no idea what tomorrow will bring, so let's just get as much of a sense of joy and happiness right now because we're guaranteed with nothing tomorrow. But the way of a Christian is, no, 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 radically different worldview. The day has dawned. So Paul's whole point is, therefore, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus. Don't make any desire or gratification for the flesh. In other words, live as if this new day has swept you up into it. Now, lastly, I want to just finish two final things. Just two realities I think about with regard to God's time frame. Again, he describes it this way. The end of all things is coming soon. So therefore, he says, live in a certain way. Now, when I think about this idea of God's time frame, uh, there's this great passage that C.S. Lewis says in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I didn't read earlier. I'm going to read it right now because it's so good. He says, do not look. This is, uh, he's having this, Aslan, you know, the lion is having this dialogue with Lucy and then this conversation. Uh, it says, do not look sad. We shall meet again soon. Please, Aslan, Lucy then said, what do you call soon? I call all time soon, said Aslan. And instantly he vanished away. <laughs> if you ever kind of like wonder, like, God, I kind of feel like God talks in like metaphors sometimes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And like, like, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. We don't always get it. But it's maybe that God's operating on an entirely different level that we are. It's possible. Some of you are like, well, that seems to make sense because he's God and I'm just a human being. Yes, of course. If I had a little gift right now that was just like, of course, you know, whatever. Like, that'd be the whole idea. Like, yes, that is absolutely 100% the fact. Now, two realities, I think, in closing to think about God's time frame. Number one, that from God's perspective, history is viewed differently. And we are often prone to forget this. History is viewed differently from God's perspective than ours. And we're oftentimes prone to forget this. We grow impatient. We grow frustrated. And sometimes we actually get offended. We get offended. God has not operated on my terms or my time frame. God has not given me a child when I really wanted a child. God has not given me a spouse when I've ached and longed and prayed and fasted and had multiple people in on the whole game praying for me. And it's not happened yet. God has not given me a house. We prayed. God has not given me the career that I went to school for. And I've got $40,000 in debt and buried underneath them. Not able even to pay that off. God has not given me the promotion in the job that I was longing for or hoping for. There are these moments in time that oftentimes don't sync up with ours. And our tendency is to forget the fact that God's not really in a rush. God's not hurried, and God is definitely not working according to our time span, our time frame. That there is, there is an incongruity, and the incongruity is on our end. 
So the question is, then how should we adapt and adjust? And I would suggest the way that we do so is one of humility. God, your ways are higher than my ways. It's one of the reasons why I love being able to just spend time singing, because the act of singing is an act of saying, I'm going to speak forth. It's a way of promoting, speaking out over our circumstances, saying, God, you are good even when I don't feel like everything is good. Do you understand the power of that? It's a way of declaring, speaking out over and above and beyond the actual reality that you might be experiencing in this moment. And if you have never actually encountered or experienced God and just singing to him, my invitation for you is to maybe, maybe adjust and make that adjustment in your life when we gather and sing. Like, learn the songs. Begin to declare the songs. Sing those songs. There's a power to when that happens. So Psalm 90 verse 4 says this, For you, with you, a thousand years are like a passing day and a brief as a few nights. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8, Peter would go on to say this, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, he goes on to say, but as some would, some would think, he says, No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anybody to perish. His invitation is that we would all repent and discover life. So again, oftentimes when we're frustrated because God is not moving on a time scale, a time frame that we would hope to, really at the end of the day, I mean, my wife and I have been married for 31 years. And we have had so many moments throughout our life where we're just like, God, why did this ball get dropped? Not necessarily on your end, but why did this thing not happen in our time frame that we were experiencing or expecting? And there's times that we've had to come back and circle back and sometimes years later look back and realize like, man, if God had given us that specific thing in that moment, then I don't, we, we might not have been ready for it. We might not have been able to take care of it. We might not have been, we, we might have been buried by it. But in the end, we were able to look at it and be like, man, God knew exactly what he was doing. Again, this might sometimes be five, ten years even later as a post-op looking back and realizing God knew exactly what he was doing. And we were frustrated, yes, for sure. We were devastated, yes, for sure. Yes, we had moments where we were just like lost and kind of questioning what's happening. And yet all the time, I'm, I'm confident, I really believe that at some point, those of us that follow Jesus all the way to the very, very end, we will look back and we'll begin to realize God knew exactly what he was doing in every single area and moment of our life. Every area. Well, for us in the moment, it didn't make sense. And lastly, and I'm done, history is ultimately headed toward God's future. And if you are into cheesy cliches, history is his story. All right? There you go. You can write that down. You can put that on a mug. You can make a t-shirt. You're welcome. History is his story. And all of history is actually heading somewhere. And here's the beauty of it all. You and me are invited into that. I don't know how that hits you. I don't know how you've ever gone through life and you've had moments where you've wanted to be acknowledged or seen or invited in something, but you weren't. Right? Our culture, man, just like aggravates the FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I didn't get invited. All my friends are hanging out. I see what they're doing on Instagram. They're all hanging out you know, at the bar and they're drinking the nice like little mixed drinks. And I'm, I'm at home trying to like figure out what I'm going to binge watch next on Netflix. Oh my gosh, life is tough. Hashtag first world problems. But the point of the matter that I would make is this. Is that at the end of the day, all history is going somewhere. There's a phrase. 
You all have heard it. Being on the right side of history. It's a very popular phrase in today's world today. And it's oftentimes used by a particular political party, which I'm not going to describe, but the point of the matter is it's oftentimes used as a term of derision. You're not on the right side of history. And there's, there's truth to that idea. Yes, brothers and sisters, we should be on the right side of history. But the question is, what is the right side of history? I would suggest to you the right side of history is one where love, forgiveness, healing, wholeness, shalom, peace wins the day. Not violence, not lies, not political posturing, not racism, not hatred, not despair, not pain, not sorrow, not tears. All of those things, the Bible says, at some point will be nothing more than a footnote. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. The future is absolutely beautiful and good. And how do we know this? Easter Sunday. Jesus rose again from the dead. A new creation was dawned. A new day came. And we're invited right now to live as if we fully have been swept up in this new day. That's my invitation to each one of us. Maybe just pause and think about where we're at. Dan comes on up, and we will lead. He'll lead us in a song. How about we all stand? And I, my invitation to you right now is to think about where are you at in relation to this new day? Are you still stuck in the night? Are the actions and choices and lifestyles, are those still, are, who define those? What's your source of authority that's, Guiding you down that path? Is it just your inner desires, your heart, your longings? Is it the culture at large that's, that's just affirming? Or is it Jesus who says, I've made all things new. This is where everything on this planet is going. One day, it'll get a brand new upgrade to the operating system. Right now, it's still, it's still Windows OS. <laughs> Some of you get that. Um, one of these days is going to be a cosmic upgrade to Mac OS, right? There you go. Anyways, really bad joke. But the point that I'd make is this. Jesus invites us to have that operating system upgraded, updated right now. To reshape us, to remake us. To live in light of this one future day right now in this present.